Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Gregor Hoppe. Gregor is a former chief IT architect at Allianz SE, a giant German financial services company based in Munich, and he is currently technical director, office of the CTO at Google in Singapore. Gregor is a popular conference speaker and well-known as co-author of the Addison Wesley book, Enterprise Integration Patterns, Designing, Building, and Deploying Messaging Solutions. Gregor is the author of the LeanPub book, 37 Things One Architect Knows About IT Transformation, A Chief Architect's Journey. His book is based on his two decades of uh, varied experience, from software engineer to author to chief architect of a large multinational company, and is intended to help IT architects understand how to meet the many challenges of orchestrating IT transformation in the enterprise. You can follow Gregor on Twitter at ghopa and check out his website at eaipatterns.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Gregor's professional interests and background, uh, his books, and a little bit about writing and self-publishing. So thank you, Gregor, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Oh, it's my total pleasure. I'm happy to be here. I should say that uh, Gregor is uh, talking to us from, from Singapore. Um, I want to thank you for taking time out of your morning um, to, to, speak to, to speak to me. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, and I know you... Um, You've got you've got a lot of experience in a lot of different areas, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and made your way into computer science. Mm. Yeah, in my case, that's actually a fair amount of time ago. So when I started, um, I always liked to build stuff, mostly sort of construction kits, physical kind of things, right? Somehow that was just my natural inclination, and. Our school had a single computer, right? It was those days where the first computer appeared. And I have to say, one of the reasons I liked it was because it was easier to fix problems. You know, if stuff broke with software, you can kind of fix it and run it over versus the mechanical stuff oftentimes actually physically broke, right? And that was very frustrating if you didn't have the right parts. So I was kind of drawn to the computers as a, as a way of experimentation. I also did a lot of electronics, and again, this being a while ago, it was very simple electronics. I remember having an electronic kit that had a single logical OR gate, right? It's like one logic gate that was basically the electronic kit. But at the same time, I still think yeah, I learned quite a lot, even as simple as it was by, by, by thinking about stuff in, in components, in, in pieces like the electronics do. So it was a little bit mechanics, a little bit electronics, and then the school had this magical computer where you could you know, start playing with and, and doing stuff. And I think that was sort of what, what motivated me. Um, education works a little bit differently in Germany than it does uh, in North America. As I understand it, students um, can get separated into streams early on. And I wanted to ask you if, if you had an experience with that. Correct. So I went through that. What happens is that after elementary schools, you do four years of schooling. After that, there's uh, three tracks that you can take. And to be honest, you're about 10 years old, so your parents kind of largely decide for you, with you, with the teacher. And then you enter one of these three tracks. Um, one track is meant more for a vocational kind of career path, right? So later you would do an apprenticeship and then the other tracks are meant if you're bound more for university. So it's an interesting concept. The way I always looked at it is that 
there's two interpretation of equal opportunity. So the one is everybody gets sort of the same kind of education. That's a equal opportunity of sorts. But the other one is also you give people the kind of education that sort of matches a little bit, you know, their the interest and development at the time. So Germany seems to follow the the latter one where you have slightly different paths relatively early on. And what if you find yourself to be in what you believe to be the wrong path. I've always been curious about this. Can you can you correct that? Correct. There's an upgrade path. So from the uh, middle track, if you wish, to the university track, you can actually upgrade because it does happen, right? There's you know, late bloomers, right? There are you know, folks who change their interests. So there's an upgrade path. You basically do an additional three years at the end and you come out sort of basically as if you had taken that track. And um, uh, I guess the only answers to this can probably be anecdotal, but what happens if... Um let's say a kid disagrees with their parents about which track they should be going into. Um, it would be pretty hard to live together if you disagreed. <laughs> yeah. So what rather happens is actually that once you turn 18 years old, you're legally um, authorized to decide your own schooling. So if uh, somebody was signed up for the extensive track, which would you know take you right there, you'd be like 18, 19 years old when you would finish. So come, some kids just quit and say, well, dear parents, today I turn 18 years old. Yeah, I never wanted to go to, to just high school. This is still high school, right? For high school that long. So that's enough for me. Thank you very much. So that does happen. It usually puts a little wrinkle sort of in the parental child relationship though. Um, and did you, if, am I correct, did you study uh, computer science at university in Germany? Yes. So for me, by the time I finished high school, I had um, at that time, then finally computers became a little bit more affordable, right? There was the Apple II, there was the VIC-20. A lot of folks in my generation grew up with these kind of things. So by that time, it had become relatively obvious that I would go into um, computer science. When I was little, I was always aiming to be a mechanical engineer because that seemed to be sort of the most creative technical kind of path for me. But then by the time I exited high school, it was relatively clear that computer science was um, the one I would want to do. What I wasn't 100% prepared for, so I was largely self-taught, what I wasn't quite prepared for was the the science part of the computer science. So when we started university, there was actually a lot of theory behind it. Like we did, you know, compiler theory and computability theory and all these kind of things. And hindsight, as so often, yeah, it was probably good for me. It gave me a good foundation, but it was a little bit of a shocker for many of us who joined university because in the first semester there was essentially no programming. It was all the theoretical foundations of computer science. And I guess yeah, it is called computer science at the end. So I would say that's fair enough. Um, I have a question that uh, comes. I often ask of people on this podcast. It's become kind of an unofficial theme, which is if you were starting out now to pursue a similar career to the one you've pursued, um, would you study computer science formally at university? I certainly would. Right. I think in the end, it's um, how do people say is before you can do things or before you're allowed to do things wrong, you first have to learn to do them right. 
often you hear these stories where people just kind of sort of break all the rules and sort of seem to freelance and ad lib everything. But often like artists, let's say architects, etc., right? They seemed a little bit crazy and ignore sort of all formalities. But most of the time you find out that first they learn how to do this properly if you can even use that word, like, you know, Picasso is maybe great examples, like, wow, I could paint these kind of things. Like, no, he was, you know, properly well-trained, you know, what we consider a normal painter, even though that's a, a difficult term to use, right? And then people sort of progressed into becoming more creative or becoming more unique. So my personal opinion is it's always good to have a proper foundation, and then you can play on top of that. Uh, that's a really great answer. Thanks for that. Um, I haven't I haven't quite put those things together in my mind with com with computer science before, but yes, coming coming at um, things from the perspective of uh, let's say teaching English literature in university, um, which I have a little bit of experience with. Um, often you you can get students who want to kind of jump ahead and start being very creative rather than you know constructing formal arguments and marshalling evidence for them. And I do remember having to say to people, look, before, of course, experimentation is great, but before you get there, you have to prove to me that you can do uh, the conventional things. There's, there's, yes. there's time for the creativity, but that time is not until you've proven uh, that you've got the foundation you need in order to even understand how you're being creative in the first place. Um, I've, I've, this, this might seem a little bit random, but, um, I've heard from German friends that, um, just the, the sort of conventions around attending classes can be, can be, um, uh, a little informal in German universities. Is that, is, does that accord with your experience where people kind of walk in and out of lectures? Yes, but I believe Stanford in the end has the similar thing. I mean, you are responsible for getting something out of your schooling. I would say the big difference is, is that the German education is free. So for a lot of people, the pressure <laughs> seems to be lower. And people just like, well, if I don't make it this semester, I make it the next one. right? If you do that at Stanford, either your scholarship will run out or your parents will have a very serious word with you because the extra quarter is, is going to cost them a nice Dime. So I think there's a little bit more more drive behind really getting something out of the time you spent there versus some folks in Germany, I think, misinterpret the the freedom a little bit to attend class or not attend class um, if, if they like. So basic same rule, but I would say slightly different dynamics around it. And in Stanford also, I mean, it being in the middle of Silicon Valley, you know, we had a class on entrepreneurship. And some of our guest speakers were like, you know, Steve Jobs came to class. You know, Scott McNeely from Sun came to, came to class. You know, Jim Clark, Silicon Graphics. So those were the biggest names of those days. Reed Hastings, right? It's still very famous for Netflix. Those were the folks who came to our class and give guest lectures. So you want to you be there. That's, uh, that sounds really exciting. And you were, you were there at a very exciting time uh, in the um, early, early to mid-90s. And I wanted to... Uh, ask if you could uh, express a little bit of what it what it was like to be uh, studying computer science in in Stanford at that time. I mean, the, you know, this would have been around the time when, you know, the internet would have been been burgeoning. Yes, yeah, so we had to public consciousness. 
Correct. Yeah. So actually, these were the days when I got the Mosaics browser, right? And we had internet in our dorm rooms. So we were definitely right there when this was happening. To be honest, I was probably a little bit overwhelmed by the whole thing. So I had a scholarship for one year for three quarters and the computer science topic. So I used it mostly to broaden my range. So there was artificial intelligence. There was a lot of robotics. So I spent quite a bit of time what I felt sort of completing my computer science portfolio and also taking entrepreneurship classes. There was a lot of what was called engineering management there. And that's probably where you could feel the most that something was was happening. But to me, sort of having come out of the German village, if you want, I was a little bit overwhelmed and I probably didn't grok 100% what was really going to happen over the next 10, 15 years. I thought, oh, this is all kind of exciting. But I, funnily, I looked at it mostly from a, from a technical kind of side. Oh, there's a browser. I can look up some documents, right? And we had some ideas about, oh, could we start a company out of it? But then we were just like, we don't really know where this thing is going to go. And then many of us actually took regular jobs. Of course, the guys who didn't, you know, some of them became extremely successful. But it was very interesting times. For me, it was, um, it was new, but it was also a little bit confusing, embarrassingly, I have to say. I didn't quite, I didn't quite get it at the time. And uh, when you left Stanford, did you move into a, uh, a job at a conventional company? I know, I know you, you got involved with a startup at some point as well. So ironically, I was just a tiny bit ahead of the curve for the startup machinery to really get into gear. And hard to believe at that time, the visa situation was relatively difficult. It wasn't so much that it was difficult to get an H-1B visa, but it was many companies weren't actually used to it that much. And then with a small startup company, because an H-1B visa is tied to the employer, that was a relatively risky thing. Thing. So I actually ended up going into consulting, which probably, you know, from a pure financial point of view, wasn't the cleverest choice because there isn't this, you know, crazy upside, you know, that the startups bring. But I always liked um, what I liked having the theoretical foundation for my computer science and my doing. I also always liked seeing the software in people's hands and, and you know, people being able to use and getting value out of what I did. And at that time, because the internet was just sort of you know, getting started, consulting seemed the best way to do so, right? You will build solutions for customers, right? And I stayed in consulting actually many, many years because I enjoyed that aspect. Uh, yeah, you write in your book um, about the kind of parallel universe that you exist in when you're a consultant. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. There's, there's, a, there's a parallel universe and sort of career pathways that you write about. Uh, but you also write about the fact that um, one of the criticisms that people can have of uh, consulting is that the consultant is not tied to results often. They, they sort of come in and do something and leave, or even maybe, you know, rather than build something, just give advice. And wanted, I wanted to ask you about how your opinion about that has evolved over time. Yeah, so that's always a slippery slope. Like the strength of the consultant, of course, is that they see many different customers, 
right? So one customer trying to undertake a certain you know, system implementation, etc. So the consultant strength is they often seen the typical mistakes, they've seen what can go wrong, and that is the, the expertise they bring. So that model does only function you know, if the consultant has access to different client environments. It can also be an advantage that the consultant isn't bogged down in the internal processes. Right? What I, in the book I refer to as the parallel universe is that you have a separate career track. You don't need to get promoted in the organization of your customers. And often, interestingly, that makes you a more trusted resource because in some organizations, there's some infighting, there's some competition. So when somebody suggests to do something, all the other people you know, have the feeling that, well, you know, maybe they're just pushing their agenda. Maybe they will take the credit for it. So being a consultant makes you immune from this and often puts you in a better position to be a trusted advisor. The slippery slope is, of course, you know, a lot of consultants you know, do give you clever advice. Then they move on, and if it doesn't work, they tell you it was an implementation issue. So I think this is the professional ethics you need to bring with you as, as a consultant to make sure that you have an actual trusted relationship and a vested interest to really advise your client. And I think in, if you do that well, you can combine the two things. You can bring the strengths, right, but still be tight enough, close enough with your customers to really see things through to completion. Um, you also worked on a contract for the uh, state government of California, if I if I understand it correctly. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what that experience is like, uh, as it perhaps contrasted from uh, sort of corporate consulting. What's it like working for a government? So, yes, basically, I went from Stanford Silicon Valley to doing work for the government, which sounds maybe like a little bit of an unnatural choice. And again, it was sort of a sequence of events. It was early in my career and telco was the hardest thing at the time which is funny because now you know, often you know, working for a telco company is, is, is very competitive and very difficult because the digital companies basically took, took 90% of the value chain, if you wish. So back then, telco was very hot and I wanted to work in telco. They didn't have the position for me in the consulting company, so they had a quite charismatic vice president who I'm still in touch with today, who said, well, why don't you come to Sacramento and we do some really interesting work for the government? I'm like... Mm, isn't that an oxymoron, right? Doing an interesting work for the government. It turned out to be actually true. Um, state of California, a very large organization, right? At the time, it was sort of the sixth, seventh largest economy in the world as a state of its own. So like the size of France. So big money flowing through there in the you know, state income taxes. And because they were a state agency, they had a lot of rules and regulations around how they could spend money. And one way to deal with that was to offer a contract that was purely around benefit achieved. So we as a consulting company, as a provider, would only get paid if the software we produce saves the state money or brings additional revenue, right? Basically, if, if it becomes a more efficient organization. So in some ironic sense, you could almost say, yeah, we did something that was 
agile in the sense that agile software development being very value driven, right? Looking to optimize the value the client achieves. So in some sense, maybe there was a very early, if a little bit commercial interpretation of that. And it turned out to be actually super interesting work. We built large custom systems. We had a lot of freedom because in the end, the customer had to trust us that this would actually create value and we had to trust ourselves that it would. So ironically, yes, um, the days working for the state government in California was some of the most interesting software development we, we did throughout our career. And um, uh, you did, you did uh, work for a startup for a period of time, uh, I recall from your book. Uh, it was uh, exercise equipment. Yes. So, um, you know, so that part in Stanford did work out. So, of course, people come together and people are like, well, why don't we do something? Right. Why don't we start a company? Yeah, and the idea was to, you know, I was never much of a gym person. I liked outdoor sports. I'd always felt like a hamster if I if I went to a gym. And of course, you know, Californians always being a bit progressive on the sort of exercise routine side, the idea was born, well, how if we make this hamster kind of exercise model more interesting using technology. So the idea was that you would be on a treadmill or on a bicycle and you would have a video stream and the video stream would interact with the exercise machine. So we filmed a hike up um, the Half Dome or biking around San Francisco. And whenever there was a hill, your bike or would actually become harder, right? We could electronically control the resistance in the bike or the treadmill would actually lift up if there was an uphill. So I built this electronic integration and I still have to say a good test for your product is always, do you have fun using your own product? And I have to say in this case, yes, it was actually a lot of fun using your own product, seeing this video, seeing the hill come up and yeah, as soon as the hill hits, you know, the treadmill lives up and you have to make it to the end of the slope. So it was in fact actually quite engaging. And uh, how did it end up, the business? So there were two challenges. So it went on for quite a while. I ran out of my uh, student work visa. So that was for me the defining moment to go, you know, do something more stable because um, I needed this H-1B visa. There were two challenges, though. The first one was we didn't really understand that industry, right, which sometimes can help. So some healthy naivete can help. But in our case, we were too small to sort of learn as we went. And the biggest technical problem was, and it's going to sound funny these days, is there wasn't any broadband internet. You know, people had dial-up modems on their telephone lines and this multimedia content that we used, the only distribution channel for that was DVDs and, and CD-ROMs, actually, rather. Right. So this, you know, many years later, Netflix started mailing DVDs in the mail, right, because even then there wasn't enough broadband. So the idea of this, you know, streaming video content, that wasn't technically feasible. So it was a distribution model with CD-ROMs and, you know, scaling that out became quite difficult. The company lived on for quite a while, got acquired, right? This happens uh, quite a bit. So in the end, I think um, the idea was sound. We had a lot of fun. We didn't get rich. Oh, well, I think it was still a fantastic thing to do. Um, I know you uh, eventually ended up at, at Google, and I want to ask you about that. Um, you got there at an interesting interesting time uh, shortly after it IPO'd, I believe. Um, but before we talk about that, um, you uh, 
moved moved abroad to study. Uh, you've worked in in many different countries, um, you know, Germany, the United States, Japan, and now Singapore. Um, and we're at an interesting time uh, with respect to discussions around immigration and and visas and things like that. Uh, the discourse in the United States is distinct. Um, you know, there's Brexit happening in the UK. I've I've interviewed a few people uh, from the UK on this podcast and asked them about um, their experience of that and how they think the current discussion might be affecting the mood in the tech sector. And I wanted to ask you about about what you think uh, about. Um, I mean, I'm going to be really general, but you know what's going on because it it is hard to kind of contain entire discourses like around Brexit or what's happening in the United States. Yeah, and it's definitely affected the mood. So I have some friends who actually packed up and left the U.S. and uh, moved to Mexico sort of out of, I would say, half out of protest and half out of all of their personal conviction. So it definitely hits a nerve with people, which isn't surprising. And it also, even from a sort of, you know, almost want to say nu nuisance level, I mean, it has impacted a lot of events that we go to, like academic events or developer conferences, right? Because people start wondering, it's like, well, if I'm hosting an event in the US, which is often the natural destination for high tech kind of things, right? Are the visa policies going to change? I'm going to have attendees who are not going to be able to go there. So even at a tactical level and at a mood level, you know, people definitely notice and people are aware of it. And generally, people are not happy about it. To me, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic that's going on there. And I reflected quite a bit on this. So on one hand, of course, the Internet, you know, even by name, the Inter net right it knows no borders right this is a global phenomenon and it's 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 grown largely because it is a global phenomenon right if you look at google or facebook these are global products right there isn't a facebook japan or there isn't a a google search you know there's a sort of language variations etc but the the product is basically a, a global product and if you're in the business of information sharing and search etc that is the natural thing to do. You want to see as, as much as you can. At the same time, you know, we have to be conscious that you know, all the technologies that we build has increased the social divide, right? It's, it's a huge uplift for folks like us. You know, we have the Stanford degrees. We work for the Googles, et cetera, right? So all this, this rapid movement in the industry and in the technology, that is a huge booster for us. And we have to be conscious about that it's not necessarily the same booster for everyone. Now, at some point, that leads to backlash where people say, like, hold on, you know, this is the stuff that makes my, my job go away, that makes my, you know, threatens my livelihood, et cetera, right? So there's not only upside about it, you know, for the Silicon Valley engineers, it's like, well, any new thing that comes out basically increases your stock options. So everything is, is great from that perspective, but this isn't universally true. So I think there is, you know, there's a reason there is, is tension. And you know, of course, many of us are, or most of us are not happy with the election results and the Brexit. And we think many of these, these kind of undertones are dangerous and very short-sighted. At the same time, I think we have to look in the mirror a little bit and sort of see that there is a dynamic that made this happen. Yeah, it wasn't, and I say this bluntly, it wasn't happened that it, it wasn't the case that one day every just everybody just became stupid, right, and decided this thing we really don't like. 
right? There's a certain dynamic behind it. So I think it's good to look at it from both sides. Personally, I, I of course hope that you know we get things to be back in balance a little bit. And as I said, you know the the technology and the things that it enables really is the basis for more global integration. So countries splitting up is, of course, going totally the wrong direction and also a dangerous direction at the end of the day. Uh, it's interesting you bring up, um, you know, the divides that uh, are happening in our society over time and in linking that with um, technology and, you know, the, the sort of emergence of of this sort of globalist internet. Um, and uh, it led me to think of, while you were talking about um, an interesting remark that um, the president made uh, with respect to technology about a 400 pound guy in his basement. Um, and I just, I found, found the president saying that to be so striking because in, in the world that I, that I live in, I sort of understand what computers are and what technology is. Uh, but to a lot of people, there's something that sets tech and tech companies apart um, from other companies. So the same person that might not get at all bothered by some kind of anti-competitive activity undertaken by, say, something like Walmart, which people still still see as not a tech company, although it's changing its own uh, image and approach around that. Uh, but there's something about that people get, get ex excited in, in a special way, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively about technology. And do you think that that there are people who are on the other side of the digital divide that simply just not really understanding what's going on. And the tech world is this sort of figure of kind of fascination and, and to some extent sort of dismay and something that people associate with things that are keeping them back. Um, what, what do you think about, about, about that? Do you think there's something special in people's imaginations about the tech sector that sets it apart? Uh, that's certainly a broad and a little bit touchy subject. I mean, I think the idea or the, the concept and the concern about the digital divide has been around for a long time. And actually, I just remembered I took a public speaking class back in Stanford. So this must have been 93 or 94. And the topic I chose was actually around digital divide at that time right because you know the internet was coming and it was you know we were the stanford students we realized at university we have access to all this but even we at home and nobody else basically had and the history tells whenever there's movement in a system, right, whenever there's innovation, um, this can be on the technical side or can also be that a political system gets loosened up, the spread widens. You know, sort of the post-Soviet Union is probably the best example, right? So, like, it was kind of a stable system for a long time. Suddenly, things really loosen up, things get moving, and immediately you'll find some folks who benefit from this hugely, and then you have, you know, exactly the, the vice versa. So, I think the dynamics of it are are known now the worst thing you could do of course do is sort of fuel the divide right the worst thing you can do is sort of demonize or sort of mystify the thing that's going on because in the end you're just sort of exploiting people's skepticisms or or sometimes you know their, their lack of knowledge about it so i'm definitely not a fan of actively fueling this or sort of spreading any kind of of stereotypes I, I think in the end you should do rather the opposite, right? The the best way, luckily in this case, it's it's not a machinery or it's not a political system so much that's changing. It's it's actually a relatively accessible technology. 
right? And I think that's one thing that even with the cloud computing and a lot of things like the Raspberry Pis, et cetera, like the entry level into programming and into technology from a financial perspective has become extremely low. Right? You can you know, get a cloud shell and start programming in a browser for basically next to nothing. You can get a Raspberry Pi for like $35 kind of thing, right? So, so in the end, that part is definitely positive. What's probably, miss, probably missing is, you know, for people to have the trigger, you know, the access to the education, for, for, to have the maybe motivation also, right, for people to take advantage of this. But I would say, interestingly, sort of the hard barriers to access this technology have actually decreased enormously right you used to have you used to have to have like 10 million dollars to buy a computer now you know for a few dollars you can do that so with a little bit of luck and a little bit of wishing maybe this helps you know compensate that but i think it won't fix itself folks have to actively sort of try to to bring the gap down uh and you um moved on from consulting to Google uh, in 2005. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit uh, about, about what that experience was like suddenly joining this, this giant and, you know, you know, rapidly growing company at such an exciting time. Yeah, so it wasn't quite as giant at the time. It was in its uh, amazing growth phase. So what happened is what happens to most consultants is the travel burden. Right, so you're always on the road. The U.S. is a very large country. I was on the West Coast, and sort of weekly trips to Chicago, weekly trips to Atlanta. Right, so ultimately that wears a lot. So the time came where I'm like, I like working with customers, but yeah, I'm a I'm a computer scientist. I'm not a flight attendant in the end. Right, so I, I needed to find something where I wasn't going to the airport every week. And Google actually called me. You know, in the end, a lot of. Um, Google recruiting was done through referrals. So I had the luck that some of my buddies had already arrived there and they referred me and I joined there as a software engineer um, doing large scale Java refactoring, AdWords front end, large Java application. So it was definitely a major shift. So I would say my career, I've sort of rebooted quite a bit. I mean, startup to consulting is a big change. You know, consulting to internet giant is, is a big change. And, you know, there's a few more big changes. So these days we might call that pivot might be the fashionable word for it. Right. For me, it was more like, you know, let me do something completely different. So Google was amazing. I mean, it, it always has been. It was much, much smaller. I don't remember exactly. It was a few thousand folks at the time, maybe two, three thousand people. So the again, the interesting thing is as these things happen, if you look back now, we're like 80, 85,000 people. You're like, wow, what was it like when it was 2000 people? But when you were there, when it was 2,000 people, like, well, it's just 2,000 people. We didn't know it was going to be 85,000 right. people. So we, we, we did, it's like the internet a little bit, right? We didn't think anything too special about it. We had work to do. We did fun stuff, right? It was search and ads, largely maps was coming around. YouTube wasn't there in the beginning. Android wasn't there, right, in the beginning. So it was, you know, I don't want to say humble, but it was, it was a smaller kind of operation with very focused engineers, and I think the one thing that hasn't changed is really the the quality of the engineers of the engineers. I mean, Google has always been able to to attract really good people, and it was fun working working alongside those folks. Uh, you mentioned that um, 
your experience working for the government of California uh, was sort of unique in the sense that, you know, you only got paid if you delivered. Um, and as I an understand it, uh, Google has uh, something that might be sort of uh, sim described as similar to that, where um, you have to, you have to be, you're being measured, your performance is being measured and you're, you always have to be delivering and that this can be kind of an exciting, one of the things that makes it exciting to work there. Is that, is that a correct characterization? Yeah, it's it's correct, but it's a very fine line to to walk. I would say Google is the kind of culture where people have an extreme degree of freedom to achieve the goals they have set, which sounds very natural, right? That's what you like to do. You give people something they should be doing, they should be achieving, and then how they get there, you leave this out, you leave this up to them. Right? A lot of traditional organizations right now don't do this though, right? They regulate what kind of chair you can sit on and what can be on your desk and what you're wearing and when you come to work and when you have a meeting, right? So they tend to regulate a lot of the ingredients, if you wish, versus Google leaves you a lot of flexibility, so you can have your dog at work and skateboard in shorts, right? The usual Google image. And what I would warn people of is that sometimes when people say that, see that image of the digital giants, they think it's like sort of like a summer camp, right? It's all like loosey goosey, and you know, people there with their dogs and shorts and skateboards. That is not actually the case, right? It's a very successful business, you know, and the you know the Facebooks and Amazons just alike, right? So in the end, they are result driven as they should be but they do give you an enormous amount of freedom in how you get there and i would say if there's a a trusted leadership and if there's the right role models in the organization this actually works quite well right it puts a little bit of discipline on us as engineers right because everybody knows there's you know breakfast and lunch and dinner and laundry and oil changes and whatever on site so you know if you if you don't pay attention you might be spending 24 hours there but in the end that is not the intention right the intention is you know to to give you all the the things you need to be comfortable so you can focus on your work and you decide you know, sort of how much of that you do, because in the end, it's only the outcome that's measured. It's, you're not measured by how many hours you spend at work. If you have a great idea and you get it done in the morning and you feel like that was a good day, you're free to go home. Uh, speaking of places that aren't summer camp, um, you moved on from Google to Allianz, which is a giant, I'm not saying that as a negative remark about Allianz, I'm saying it as a sort of mark of respect for uh, what they do. Um, a giant global uh, insurance company, and uh, what what led you to make that decision to to go from somewhere like Google to move to uh, from Tokyo, I, I gather, to to Munich and to work for this uh, insurance company. Yes, so a large insurance company is not summer camp. People wear suit and ties. Uh, all my coworkers asked me when I joined, "How come you don't have to wear a tie?" And my answer was, well, how come you do? It's like, well, everybody does. Right? And I'm just like, well, that doesn't mean you have to. So, so there was definitely a little bit of cultural challenging. So yes, very different environment. Um, larger, right? 145,000 people, very globally diverse. So very interesting business. People always think insurance is a little bit boring, right? You need to get car insurance because otherwise you can't get your registration, right? In the end, though, insurance covers anything from 
you know, travel insurance to accident insurance for your day of skiing, right down to, I always say, whenever something really bad is in the news, Allianz pays, at least a part of it, right? Whether this is Malaysia 370, the Costa Concordia, or anything else dramatic happens, a flood landslide, anything, you know, the large insurance companies are always right there. And in those cases, it's not about, it's not so much about paying, it's also a lot about crisis management. So for the large corporate customers, insurance companies actually engage in, in very different ways. So they do things like safety inspections. So let's say you want to insure your power station. Some highly qualified engineers from the insurance company will come and look at your turbines and all the other setup and say like, well, does this meet the safety standards or does this meet our standards? Because if it doesn't, yeah, we're not going to insure this or we're going to up your premium. Likewise, if something goes wrong, yeah, they don't need a check for $500, right? The large companies, they need crisis management, they need safety management, they need reputational management. So in the end, you know, insurance is actually a lot more interesting than, than what people see from the classical sort of homeowner kind of car insurance. In my case, though, it was a little bit of a personal change. Yeah, I worked with Google in Mountain View in the mothership and then in Tokyo for over four years, actually, doing super interesting stuff in mobile ads. And then for you know, partly personal reasons, I was looking to come back to Germany. I had been on the road, if you wish, for almost 20 years, right? I went to Stanford with a suitcase or two, right? And I basically hadn't come back. So there was an inclination for me to come back to Europe, be closer to my parents. And then I also thought, for me, it's always the kind of place I want to live and the kind of place I want to work depends a lot on which country I'm in. I think yeah, different different environments just make different kind of companies more favorable. Like if I was in Silicon Valley, I probably would not work for a large insurance company, right? I would work in a, in a high-tech kind of environment. But if you go back to, to Germany, I think some of these large organizations are actually very interesting to work for. So, you know, a few things came together, and there was I um, ultimately becoming the chief architect of a of a large insurance corporation. And similar to the government kind of projects, the things we did there was actually were actually extremely interesting. Yeah, you've you've written about um, uh, some of the interesting challenges that the insurance industry is facing now, and some of the you know exciting ways going forward. And it must have been really fascinating to be working for an insurance company at you know at around this time uh, when, you know, the, you know, ride sharing is becoming a thing, car sharing is becoming a thing. Um, and you also wrote about somewhere about um, the Internet of Things. And I was wondering if I could just pick your brain a little bit about that. What are the what are the particular challenges that the insurance companies uh, are aware of themselves uh, facing with with the Internet of Things? So yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, insurance has become even more interesting because the digital disruption like we call it, right, on which is a lot of the premise of the book, right? The rules of the game are just fundamentally changing. So I often joked inside that the Allianz is 127 years old. I said, well, we had 127 years to basically find all products that don't depend on technology. So you can be pretty sure, yeah, we did a pretty good job 127 years. We found all of those. By, you know, the same logic, that means that any new product that comes along is going to be technology-driven. It's going to be uh, technology-enabled, right? The whole drive as you go, right? This is all sensors in the car, right? So this is one main factor, 
right? So the technology and especially the IoT brings new kind of applications. I often say, you know, insurance insures things. So knowing more about these things is, is a great thing to do, right? So this is where IoT comes in. And as so often, the technology doesn't just appear overnight, right? So it's often a matter of price points. So let's, I mentioned before, you know, large insurance companies will do insure things like train engines and drilling platforms and power stations. Those things had IoT for almost decades, right? Because it's very expensive equipment. It's you know, often safety critical. It's very expensive if there's downtime, you know, a turbine breaks, right? Getting that repaired is, is a major ordeal. So those things always have been heavily instrumented, analyzed, right? Everybody looks at, does this thing make a funny noise? You know, does the bearing do anything? So it's always been there. What has happened is that the price point comes down dramatically, and the, the thing that it's lent to in the insurance industry is a very interesting one. Traditionally, we think of insurance companies like the ones who pay out when something bad happens. Now, of course, if you think about it, that's not a happy day for either party because something bad happened to you and the insurance company has to pay. So this is actually, in some sense, the worst case scenario. So there's a lot of shift, what we call in the insurance company, to claim prevention versus claim handling. Well, wouldn't it be much nicer if this bad thing haven't happened because you wouldn't have to deal with it and we as insurance company wouldn't be paying out either. So we're both happier than otherwise. So a lot of the IoT, a lot of the metrics are just about that. Right? So they're about understanding what's going on, you know, making your car break before it hits the car in front of you, or likewise in the health sector, you're having sensors, you're having early warning signals if something is not 100%, 100% right in your body. The same with heavy machinery, right? If this turbine is starting to vibrate in an odd sense, right, there is a sensor that tells you that. So that way, um, a lot of predictive analytics can happen. And you can catch sort of things that could have been a bad case scenario before they actually happen. So in the end, it's very interesting use of technology and a big business driver for insurance because claim avoidance is, of course, a good thing for them as well. So this is one of the examples where, where really technology is making major inroads into the insurance business. Um, I've got it's a slightly selfish question, but I have a particular interest in uh, watching the self-driving car technology evolve. Um, and uh, a sort of minor claim to fame I have, very minor, is that a few years ago I had a letter published in The Economist in which I sort of predicted that, um, unoriginally, but predicted that um, one thing the car industry is not prepared for is the uh, ending of personal car ownership. Um, and I've read that this is something that um, insurance companies are also looking looking ahead towards. Uh, what happens if people don't own their cars anymore? Um, is do you have any particular thoughts about about that? Because what what you're describing very interestingly is a is a is a business that sort of cannibalizes itself naturally because it wants to make things safer, which you know one could then conclude means people will need less insurance or the insurance will get cheaper. Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of facets to this. So the self-driving cars have two major aspects. So the one is 
It could be a really great enabler for car sharing and less car ownership, because in the end, the biggest disruption in car sharing we've seen was that you can pick up the car pretty much anywhere and leave it anywhere. I often use this example where gradual changes in technology and the business model excuse me, ultimately reach a tipping point. So car rentals must have been around for almost as long as the car has been around. But a car rental never fundamentally changed the model, right? The, you have to book it in advance. You have to go somewhere where there's the car rental company. They like you to bring it back to the same place, right? So it behaves kind of like your own car, except you, you own it for like a week or a couple of days instead of for a couple of years. Now, the car sharing, even though it seems like a increment, Right? It's kind of doing the same thing. You just kind of use your phone to unlock it. It has reached the tipping point because now the car is anywhere you want. You can rent it one way. You just leave it wherever you went. Right? It took the friction out. And I think the self-driving cars are going to make another push because now the car can come to your house, for example. Right? It can go very slowly out of the parking garage and meet you where you are kind of thing. So I think it's another big enabler of the car sharing part. So that's definitely factor number one, and that will reduce car ownership, and the insurance companies are extremely aware of that. The second part with a self-driving car is, of course, who is the liable party? You know, if the car is driving by itself, should, I, should my insurance premium go up after my car causes an accident? Or is this rather a corporate insurance, right? Would Tesla, you know, to use the example, would Tesla want to have a corporate insurance contract with Allianz, right? And just say, I insure my cars, I insure my engineering, my software, right? Because the people who are inside actually have relatively little to do with what my car does. So it wouldn't be quite fair to charge them the premium based on age or gender or where they live, because that really makes no no difference, right? So there's, so there's very interesting dynamics at work there. If you look at insurance as a whole, Generally, car insurance can be a big revenue driver. It's often not the biggest profit driver for a large insurance company. It's a fairly competitive market. You know, the margins are relatively thin. So in the end, they look very, very carefully. At the same time, if you're diversified and you're a large insurance corporation, that is probably not going to put you out of business. What's really interesting is to start having these corporate relationships, right? You know, how can you engage with a BMW or a Mercedes or a Tesla? Because the whole liability question fundamentally changes. Um, you mentioned relationships and uh, your work at Allianz was uh, as an enterprise architect and ultimately chief architect. Um, and I wanted to ask you about if you could explain to people what, what those roles entail and how uh, relationships within the corporation you're working for are a key part of that role, as I understand it. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure there's some, some mystery around like what does a chief architect really do? I would say in this case, and, and this will be true for many organizations in, in, in today's day and age is, you know, they're in a transformation scenario. So all the things we just talked about requires the organization to work differently than they have been because 127 years, more or less sort of selling the same products. Now there's major change in the system. So there's a transformation scenario that of course also impacts the IT. 
right, this is kind of tech, different technology. Now you have sensors in cars, you need to get the data, you have analytics, yeah, et cetera. So you can imagine that this is something very different than you know, administering insurance you know, policies. So a lot of the role, I would say, of the enterprise architect and the chief architect is to make sure that the technology that the IT such an organization has actually benefits the business in the best way it can. And again, it sounds obvious, well, why would you make technology that doesn't benefit the business? But then you start to realize there's long planning cycles, there's budget cycles, there's office politics, whether you want it or not. There's vendors sometimes selling you things, you know, that you know, they are very convinced about, but you might not be, right? There's, there's a thousand factors that, that make this alignment, you know, go out of whack. And because in the large organizations, things often don't move so quickly, yeah, it can happen that a year or two goes by with IT spending money, doing a project, investing in a certain technology, where in the end the business impact doesn't actually come out, where, where the cycle doesn't close. So in the end, that, I would say, in, in, in this era, is one of the most essential functions of the enterprise or chief architect to make sure that that connection is solid. And is that importance generally recognized within today's large corporations that weren't weren't necessarily historically tech companies, or is that something that you need to you need to argue for? You know that so that people recognize the importance of the role. At the board level, it definitely is. So that's originally what convinced me to join a large insurance company. Right? I was interviewing with a chief operating officer right, who's a board member, fantastic guy. Right? So I often joke that the, the leadership sits up in the penthouse. Yeah, and that doesn't just mean they're sort of whining and dining themselves. That means they also have the, the best point of view. Right? They have the foresight. So at, at board level, at leadership level, yes, absolutely, this, these organizations know what's coming their way. And they also see some of the inefficiencies they have in the systems. They often look at banking, like retail banking, as sort of a leading model about how financial services got disrupted. Right? I often, when I hold a workshop, I ask folks, so who has been in a physical bank branch in the last month, right? And occasionally there's somebody who lost their pin or got a mortgage or something, right? There's like the odd case, but basically the answer is nobody. So, so the retail banking is kind of giving a, a, a sort of more than subtle warning to the insurance companies what's, what's going on there. So at the leadership level, yes, they will realize that because one hand, they foot the bill, right? They see the IT costs you know, in the hundreds of millions or often billions of dollars, right? We often believe only the digital companies have money, right? This is not quite true. Yeah, there's a lot of very successful businesses where there's a lot of money going around and also a lot of money being invested. Right. So in this case, several billion euros a year in IT. So, yeah, of course, you know, company leadership sees you know, where that is going and whether that brings the expected return. So they definitely do. And also they see the need to become faster, right, to actually do things that lead to quick results. Where it gets tougher is if you have project managers who are asked to run a three-year project that was maybe planned five years ago, right, when things, you know, technology dynamics were very different. Now, it would be very difficult for them to say, you know what, I'm just going to cancel my own project, 
because you know, look, you know, it all doesn't make so much sense anymore. And and there's sort of this divide and these different kind of incentive systems that that make this so so difficult. You will find some folks where you get a lot of support, and you find some other folks and say, yeah, yeah, I know you enterprise architect, go dream on. I have a real project to deliver. You write in your book about um, how. Uh architects, uh, physical architects who, you know, design, design buildings and stadiums and things like that, that you can, you can see their personality in their work. And you, you say that, um, uh, the same goes for, uh, technology architects. And I was wondering if you could describe a little bit about if it's, if it's, if I'm getting this right, if you could describe a little bit about your, your style. Mm. So, yeah, yes. So I, there's a little bit of pet peeve of mine, that a lot of people believe this technology stuff we're doing isn't particularly creative, right? We're the guys with the thick glasses and the shirt coming out the back, right? And just kind of, you know, typing at the computer all day. And sort of the last thing people would attribute to us is creativity. And I think this is completely wrong, right? Is I think there's a lot of personality and creativity in it. One of the most surprising conversations I once had with a manager a long, long time ago where I sort of very casually made a statement is, oh, if I look at a piece of code, I can tell who in my team wrote this. And he was like, wow, it's like magic. How does that work, right? He thought the code is sort of a emotionless, heartless, you know, kind of machine thing, right, that doesn't have any human element, right? And then it's like, wow, like, you know, seeing who wrote this to him was eye-opening, right? So and I would say in architecture, that's even more so, right? Because basically you're starting either with a blank sheet of paper, right? And you need to make something out of it, or you're starting with a lot of snippets. It's almost like a collage, right? And in the end, you need to make, you know, something, something useful out of it. So, so yeah, they're my, my little pitch for, I think, Programming up to doing architecture is actually a hugely creative exercise. And I would even go as far as saying is the folks who lack you know, a certain amount of creativity will probably never do, you know, will never do really well in this. They'll never be sort of the ones who really achieve great results because that is um, one of the key ingredients. Coming back to the style question, for, for me, I would say, uh, it's difficult to put in words, but I would say that what I'd like to do about this is that to find the to play off the healthy tension between it being very rational and it being sort of a little bit of an art form, right? And those analogies have been played a long, long time. Is it one or the other, right? We need to make software development more industrialized or other people say, no, it's really craft. And you can argue forever about it, I think for the simple reason, because it's both. And I think that healthy tension, I would say probably best describes my style. Um, give you some examples. So definitely as chief architect, I was always known as sort of the stickler for a rational reasoning. Like people always, when they say, oh, we need to choose technology X, I would say, why? It's like, well, because technology Y isn't any good. It's like, well, well how define good and not good, right? I wanted to see a very rational, here's what we're trying to do. Here's the three things that are important to get there. Here's the two options you looked at, right? And here's where A was better than B or vice versa. So I've been known to be quite a stickler. It's probably like the German schooling that comes out <laughs> for, you know, there needs to be, there can't be a logical break in the chain. 
because a lot of times what happens is people have a preferred answer and they sort of reverse engineer how they got there. Right. So on that one, as, as chief architect, we couldn't tolerate. Right. It's like we had to know where we wanted to go and then make sure the technology solution, the vendor solution, we map into that. So my style, I would say, can be best described by marrying that and make sure this is all sound with then taking a step back and looking at the whole picture and and seeing that there's a certain harmony. Right. If, if you went on the, on the dangerous metaphor maybe of, of making this a painting, right? In one hand, yeah, I would be extremely strict on the color science, right? It's like making sure sort of nothing is there by accident. But then once the, the gestalt of this, once the thing emerges, you switch your brain to a very different mode, right? You switch into maybe right-hand side brain mode and you still make sure that there's an overall balance. And I would say that, would best describe my style if it can even do that. And I would say also that's what keeps making it interesting. Uh, well, and speaking of keeping it interesting, uh, you recently uh, moved moved back to uh, Google um, where you're the, as I said in the introduction, the technical director in the office of the CTO uh, based in Singapore. And I wanted to ask you um, about this, this latest uh, move that you've made and what what do you what do you do in your current role and and uh, why did you go back to Google and why why is it in Singapore? Mm, good good points. So what we talked about with the consultants, right? Where I say some of the slippery slopes, but also the advantages of of living in the parallel universe. That is also true for IT transformation. And I reflected actually quite a bit about this with my boss, who's the she's the CEO of the IT division, where I sort of drew the spectrum of. How much are you ingrained in an organization that you're trying to change? And the two extremes are, well, you're not at all and you hand them a paper and say, yeah, Howard Business Review said you should be doing X, Y, Z and good luck. <laughs> right. And the other one is you're fully immersed. And both of those are difficult because on the one hand, you have no impact. And if you're fully immersed, you often don't have the freedom to act. Right. In the end, what you need to do to move an organization, right, you need to have the right ideas, you need to have some creativity, and then you need to have the ability to actually move. Right. So there's the scale of authenticity and the scale of actually making a change. And both endpoints of the curve are near zero. So always try to move a little bit in the in the middle. Right, where you're not just a totally normal, regular employee, but you need to be able to break and bend a few more rules because if you are 100% bound by the system you're trying to change, it becomes like pulling yourself out of the swamp by your head. Right, and that only works in the in the stories. That doesn't work in in real life. So we started some of this discussion, and I felt that over the five years, I had injected about as much change as I could being a full-time employee. Now, being a full-time employee had also many advantages, like I could hire and mentor a team. Right? I could build a team. I could run a team. I was their formal supervisor. I took care of their performance reviews. Right? I made sure they get raises and rewards. Right? There was many things that I could only do by being there, but I felt after five years, a lot of those things I had done and that taking a step back would be, would be the right thing to do. It was also a time where, so a little bit surprisingly, I, I was suddenly you know, not attached to anything from the, from the personal side. So I was like, oh, 
you know, I was thinking to maybe make a career change because I felt, you know, five years, you know, was a lot of things I did at Allianz and, you know, they might want some time to digest a little bit. And suddenly I wasn't sort of very much tied to the location I was in. So I was saying, well, in your life, it, you know, these moments become much rarer, right? Once you have a family and the kids are in school and, you know, depending where you are in your career, just moving a country becomes hard and harder. So I found myself in a position where like, oh, you know, if I really wanted to, I could just like pack up now and get on an airplane and go somewhere else. And I said, well, having spent four and a half years in Asia, in Tokyo, why don't I go back to Asia? Right. I always liked Asia. It's very dynamic. There's a lot of energy here. Um, and I said, why not? And I rang up my old Google buddies and I said, well, you know, I just did five years at uh, doing IT transformation at a very large organization. And I was a Googler before. And I think that's a relatively rare combination. Don't you have something that takes advantage of that? And in the end, that's what they did. Right. In the office of the CTO, we're basically I am advising other companies in very similar things to what I did at Allianz. So for me, it was a, was a perfect fit. And I said, okay, sure, let's, let's do that. And, uh, you know, I put all my winter clothes in storage and moved to Singapore. Uh, well, best, uh, best wishes for this uh, next stage in your journey. It sounds, it sounds really exciting. Um, and, and, of course, always moving to a new place brings with it a lot of interest and, and pleasure as well. Um, Moving on uh, to the next part of your interview, I wanted to talk to you about uh, your book, um, your latest book, 37 Things One Architect Knows About IT Transformation. Um, what, was the, what was the inspiration for, for writing this book? I would say it was probably therapy, as, as funny <laughs> as will, will sound. So transforming a large organization is hugely rewarding, but it's also extremely difficult. Right, I alluded to some of the things you're bound by many rules of the system you're trying to change. So basically every day you're pushing, right? You're sort of relentlessly driving for change. And as rewarding it is to see sort of the system around people changing and some folks who were maybe held back by the system, you know, now sort of really getting a new life and a new interest in a career, while that is hugely rewarding, it's also extremely tiring. Right? So in the end, I said, okay, you know, this isn't just a job. You know, this is not something you do because there's a paycheck at the end of the month. I felt there must be there must be something more I'm getting out of this experience, maybe thinking a little bit selfishly as well. So I said, you know, I should really write about it. And I realized that there wasn't so much about it, right? probably because the market size is maybe not so huge. So a traditional publisher would think like, oh, maybe, you know, you're not going to sell so many of these books. And the other reason being that I think most folks who do this job don't have the time or don't take the time to write a book about it. And I had started to notice that on my blog, which was originally a blog about the enterprise integration patterns or about messaging architecture, I had noticed that I started to blog a lot more about sort of architecture and organizational kind of topics because yeah, I blog about what's on my mind. And I thought like, oh, they have a few blog entries. If I, you know, edit those and, you know, make those proper and, and, and fill those out a little bit, you know, and, you know, this might be sort of the starting point of something bigger. And since a lot of my friends were on LeanPub already at the time, they, they hinted me to LeanPub saying, well, this is a great place to write a book if you don't know yet sort of exactly what it's going to be. 
So I took the chapters of the blog, I converted them into sort of the rudimentary, the skeleton structure of the book, and then I had something I could keep keep working on, and and that's how largely the book came about. And you made the very interesting decision to structure the book as uh, a set of stories, and you you have very um, particular reasons for doing this. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I found that that really interesting. Right. So generally, if you had said somebody is going to write a book about enterprise architecture or even IT transformation, uh, you would expect it to be a little bit dry. Right? You expect this to be a technical book. Right. So in the end, that's exactly what I didn't want to do. Right. I wanted to convince people that, as we talked about before, it's actually quite creative. It's, it's quite interesting. And also, you know, to be fair, it's a, it is a complex topic, right? And both the organizational complexity, the complexity of the business environment, and the complexity of the technology goes nowhere but up, right? Like all of these are moving faster, becoming more complex. So I felt that in the end, storytelling is the best way for our, our human brains to make it through that complexity, right? People don't read dictionaries. You know, people read books and books have a storyline. You know, books are engaging somehow, right? This is this is wired into our physiology, right? This is a fundamental way of functioning of our brains. So I had a, a strong affinity to try to make this engaging and also to make this real life. I mean, the title is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, right? It's a very long title, right? And it makes it already obvious that this is a very personal account, that's where the therapy aspect comes in. So in the end, packaging this in, in stories felt a very um, interesting format for me to write in. But also many people have commented on it. It's like, oh, it's not a technical book at all. I'm, I'm not so technical, but I really got a lot out of your book. I can relate to that. And there was definitely an objective that I had. I didn't want this to be a reference manual or a technical book of any sorts. I wanted to be, this to be a a story where there are, of course, nuggets, right? Useful nuggets that you can take away, but that it's packaged in a, in a nice and engaging way. Um, you write about movie star architects in one of your chapters, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, if you, if you recall that, the, the, where you talk about the four personas, personas of an enterprise architect. Yeah, that's been a metaphor I, I've been using for a long time. And to be honest, I, I would have to probably scour my hard drive somewhere where to find where I used this the very, very first time. You know, these things just pop in your head. So people always ask, yeah, what does an architect actually do and what kind of role should they take? And in the end, as so often, the answer is it's a combination of things. It's not sort of one persona. And to make this... Yeah, you know, approachable and a little bit entertaining to people. You know, I chose sort of movie characters to say, you know, to to give the analogy, and the movie pulls. I'm not the movie. The book actually pulls. Um, you know, quite a few things from The Matrix. Man, you know, being a little bit of a sci-fi geek, etc. Yeah, I, I watched the Matrix movies with a lot of interest, and you know, when people think the architect, you know, they often think about the guy in the Matrix. We always remind people, careful. 
that guy is actually a computer program, right? It's not a person, so be careful with this metaphor. But still, people have this idea of this sort of gray-bearded authority, right? You become the chief architect by basically knowing everything and speaking in this you know, sort of very rational kind of manner. Well, that is just the way it's got to be. And then this is how this started a little bit. And you know, some friends of mine had the analogy of the gardener Right, where they basically um, take the view that in a large enterprise, the architect doesn't actually decide everything. Right, stuff grows on its own, especially the weeds grow the fastest. So, so the architect's job is more to keep things in balance, to prune a little bit here, to do a little bit of planting, right? But the growing will happen all by itself, and that's where the gardener metaphor came from. And you know, I mapped that again to a movie character. I said, oh, well, that's you know, just like Edward Scissorhands, right? Who's the, who's the most gifted gardener who's sort of shaping plants? Well, that must be Edward Scissorhands, who's making all these amazing sculptures out of, you know, the, the neighbor's bushes. And then it sort of took on a little bit of a life of, it, of its own. And I sort of went down a whole spectrum of different personas, you know, the Wizard of Oz, etc. of that in combination would, would make up so a little bit the personality of a, of a senior architect. Um, speaking of sci-fi, you actually uh, reminded me of something I was thinking when I was um, reading about your section about the the architect elevator, um, where you say uh, architects can ride what I call the architect elevator. They ride the elevator up and down to move between a large enterprise's boardroom and the engine room where software is being built. Uh, and that, that reminded me of um, Star Trek, uh, in particular, mm -hmm. um, uh, Scotty and Geordi's roles, and how diplomacy is actually a really important part of what they do. Um, so, uh, and I was just actually just by coincidence, I was watching recently the episode where Jordy and Scotty meet. Um, and Jordy's uh, really busy trying to get something done. And Scotty's kind of hovering around him, um, uh, interfering with him a little bit. And uh, Scotty asks him, you know, well, how long is it going to take to solve this problem? And Jordy goes at least an hour or something like that. And then he goes, well, how long did you tell the captain it would take? Um, and Jordy says, well, an hour. And, and Scotty's just, you know, totally flabbergasted that, that he would tell the truth because, you know, he wanted, he wanted to set the captain's expectations so that he could be surprised by Scotty's excellent performance and also leave him wiggle room. Um, was, was something like that a part of, I mean, I'm not talking about dishonesty, but was, was diplomacy an important part of your role uh, in, in sort of riding that elevator from the engine room to the boardroom? I, it, it certainly is, right? And yeah, when I, when I joke that you can learn a lot from the, the Matrix trilogy about sort of daily life, then the Star Trek folks will definitely make the point that you can learn yet a lot more from, from Star Trek, right? So this is certainly true. And what I like is, you know, this connection between the, the bridge in, in their case, right, and the engine room, because ultimately, you know, both things have to be in harmony. Otherwise, you know, the spaceship you know, is, isn't going to do what you need it to do, or the mission is definitely not going to be successful. And that has become a little bit the, the metaphor of the book, right? The defining chapter is definitely the architect elevator, and it really relates back to what we were talking about earlier, where the architect's job is really to make sure that whatever IT gets built benefits the business and also that the business kind of thinks and decides in a way so that it can really take advantage of, of the technology. It's really about making that connection. 
And as we know, in many organizations, you know, that connection is pretty far apart. You know, the, the best quote on this I ever got is I was telling my friend that I am teaching a class about IT skills to senior executives. Right? This is a fantastic program that Allianz had started where they require all the senior executives to take IT training, basically. Right? And her comment was, well, I hope they are not too senior to understand what you're talking about. Huh. Right? And, and that really highlights the challenge, right? The idea is that generally, as somebody is senior up in the organization, they are less technical. Right? In the digital companies, that is not like that, like a, you know, like a Sergey Brin or, or you know, Mark Zuckerberg. And they, they would not fall into this model, right? But in traditional organizations, that can happen. Right. And that is the disconnect, the dangerous disconnect that this elevator is um, aiming at, at at fixing. Now, coming back to sort of the diplomacy, that is a huge part of it. Right. Because now you start moving across different levels. You need to communicate and engage appropriately at the individual levels. Right. And I don't think it's about you know, sandbagging estimates, but it's about building building the trust and relationship that you're not just there as a pure connecting element, because otherwise the folks in the engine room will just feel, well, just taking the good ideas and selling it to management. Right? That is not what the architect elevator is meant to be. Right. The architect elevator is meant to be you bring value on both sides. Right. You give some hints in the engine room about you know, what might add more value and you, you know, do likewise in in the penthouse so that you bring value. And I think to build that trust and, and to really highlight the fact that you're engaging at both points and bring the value there, a, a certain amount of you know, dip diplomacy and way of engaging is absolutely needed. Um, for uh, what I found to be very clever and entertaining reasons, your book is called 37 Things uh, One Architect Knows About IT and Transformation. And I'll leave it to listeners to uh, buy the book to, to find out why that number was chosen. It's a really good story. Um, uh, but if you're so um, if you instead of 37 things, if you had just one thing um, that you could say to all the, the, the future or even current sort of enterprise architects out there, uh, what would you what would you say to them? And yes, I'll answer with a chapter that actually didn't make it into the book. So so tell a tiny story still. So my friends challenged me a little bit and said, well, it should have been 42 things. Yeah, because the you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy of the Magic Number Forty Two. So there's a whole other you know segment of of geek subculture. So I am actually writing on a on a few more chapters, and who knows, maybe it'll become thirty seven plus five or or forty two things. So the one advice I would pull from the not yet written chapters, and that is in today's day and age, architects really live in the first derivative. Right. Your job is to increase the rate of change because the digital world is all about speed. It's how quickly you can innovate, how quickly you can iterate. And if you're trying to build a system that never has to change ever, you probably don't need an architect. Right? You just hammer it together somehow. If it works once ever, there you go. You're done. Now, of course, you know, the, the catch is that the premise is most likely false. Right? Building a system that never, ever has to change is extremely rare. So more likely than not, your system will have to change. 
Yeah, it will have new requirements. Um, it will have updates to software versions that it relies on. It will scale out. It will increase in size. It might be in different markets, languages, right? So it's a thousand of different ways your system will change. And to me, you know, being a little bit, you know, the mathematics background, you know, the change in a, in a, in a function, in a mathematical function, that's what we call the first derivative. Right, that defines the rate of change, and likewise, I would say the rate of change in an organization really defines the need of an architect. Your job is to make things such that they can change with ease, with low friction, and that's the advice I would really want to give. Um, the last question I always ask in these interviews is um, if there were one thing about Lean Pub that we could improve or one thing we could fix or one thing we could build with build for you uh what would you what would you tell us Ooh, so that one i would have to think about because in the end i'm super happy so the idea of publishing before things are finished we actually already followed back with the enterprise integration patterns, which is like 14 years ago. And I can't take credit for the idea because that was Martin Fowler's idea. He said, just put all your stuff on the website. And we're just like, oh, people will steal everything and read everything and never buy the book. And he says, well, no, no, that's not going to happen. It's going to make people more interested in the book. And the risk that you take for the three people who are probably going to steal it, right, that cost is minimal compared to all the other people who you engage in all the feedback you get. So we've always been big fans of sort of having things published while you're writing it. Except in the old days, it was very distinct. Right? There was a phase where we were publishing to the website, and then there was a very painful transition from that into something that started to resemble a book. And in the end, the, I would say the biggest accomplishment that LeanPub has brought us is that distinction no longer exists. You can, you can work on your book and, and keep publishing as you go along, but when the time comes to say, like, oh, now it's no longer kind of a blog thing, now it's, it's a book – well, well, there's nothing to do. You just sort of, you know, you know, hit the final publish button and there is your book and you can have it printed and, and many other things. So in that sense, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm super duper happy. Even some folks kind of comment on Markdown being sort of restrictive or difficult. I found this to be actually very, very easy, easy going, right? So in the end, I would say, I might actually say I'm a, I'm a quite happy customer and, and again, it's not about just you know, having different tools, right? People need to understand that it changes the way you write the book, right? Sometimes people say like, oh, it's just another publishing platform. And there's, you know, there's nice articles, right? I think from you and, and your colleagues out there saying, no, 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 that's not what it's about, right? It's about changing the way you write the book. And I think that's the key takeaway, and in my case, it's worked extremely well for me. If I hadn't had the feedback from people while I was writing, I might have never reached the 37 things. So for me, it was very important to have it out there, to see people are willing to buy it, people giving feedback. So I would say I'm a, I'm a pretty happy customer, but, I, but I'll think about where I can provide some, some input still. Well, thanks for that really great answer. And yeah, if you do, if you do think of anything, please, please let us know. I just, I just wanted to highlight one, one thing you said very well, which, or you, uh, you invoked there, which was um, relaxing 
uh, it's one of the things that we, we sort of like when I'm interacting with authors, it's one of the things that I often find myself doing is saying, you know, just, just try, try, it's sort of paradoxically, the hardest thing to do is to relax sometimes if you're nervous about publishing for the first time. And, um, just, just the other day we had sort of two emails in a row from people totally separate from each other saying, you know, one guy, one guy accidentally published his book. He just didn't understand that when he pressed <laughs> published, it would go up for sale, which, which happens from time to time when we're working on how to, you know, fix it. So that doesn't happen, but he, he got a sale <laughs> and he was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Um, you know, we've got to put a stop to this. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then the next email was from someone who, who had, 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 uh, had done something similar, um, and, and, you know, had 10 sales like right away, uh, and said, I can't believe it. You know, my book's not nearly, nearly, you know, ready. Um, but last I checked, no one, no one had asked for refunds. And one of the things that we've, that's changed over time is not only have, have authors sort of become more comfortable with the idea of publishing early and publishing often, uh, and, and watching the book evolve in public, but actually readers uh, are more familiar with the idea of in-progress publishing as well. So things are changing on that side too, where people kind of, you know, they're, they're not shocked anymore when they, when they purchase an unfinished book. They recognize what's going on. Oh, the author has published this early, and, you know, I'm going to have an opportunity to watch as they, as they publish new versions, and, you know, I'll come, I'll come back to the book when, when, when I'm ready, but they don't, they don't, they don't freak out uh, when yeah. they encounter an unfinished book. And I just wanted to say that too, to any sort of potential authors listening. Um, uh, you know, one of the most important things you can do is just get started. And the motivation and the excitement that comes from that is something that um, the readers share with you. Mm -hmm. And I would say even this is a fantastic example of where we talked about sort of the business model and the technology alignment, right, which has been a little bit of our, our running theme, because when electronic book publishing first came out, people treated it like a print book, right? People would sit in a quiet chamber, write the book, right? And ultimately it comes out, but it comes out just like on paper. And this is a classic case where people used a new technology, but still apply the old model of thinking, meaning you know, the business hasn't really realized the potential. And this is what the chief architect or enterprise architect's job is versus in your case, right? For me, this was, was extremely natural saying, well, once you publish electronically, this doesn't have to be a one-time event anymore, right? Because you can just have updates anytime, right? And people would read it as it comes along. And so you changed the model. So for me, it, it is another classic example of sort of understanding the technology, but making the bridge to see how this can also change the business model. And that's exactly what we all talk about when we talk about IT transformation. Well, uh, I wanted to say, uh, Gregor, thank you very much again for taking the time uh, to have this really interesting conversation. I, I feel like we could keep going, but um, it's been about an hour and a half, so I feel like I should probably uh, call call our time. Um, uh, but yeah, once again, thank you for taking the time to do this interview. Uh, thank you for the great answers and your stories um, and for being a Lean Pub author. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's been a huge pleasure for me. Thank you very much. Thanks.